All right, so we're going to continue on with the series we've been on, which is actually on the book of Nehemiah. We're calling it Vision Walk. How do we go from God's vision in our lives to actually you know, getting the footsteps and walking it? Uh, we started last week, and we introduced this, and just a real quick historical note. This book takes place during the time of exile in Israel. What that means is Babylon comes in and destroys, um, overcomes the, the Israeli army, and they, they basically conquer Israel. They destroy Jerusalem. And they take captives away. That's the book of Daniel. And uh, we've talked about that a few years ago in our uh, Survivor series. And so there, you know, that's online if you want it. And um, we talked about that. And then after that, the Babylon, Babylonians get conquered by the Persians. Uh, Darius conquers them. And there's still a period of exile. Uh, but at the, at the time the Persians take over, they, they give them the okay. Some of them can go back uh, home if they want. And very few of them do because they're rather comfortable uh, in, in where they've kind of settled in in Persia. And they almost all get killed over that uh, in the book of Esther. And uh, she actually steps forth and saves the entire nation from, from destruction. And so this book comes after that. They come, they're out of order in the Bible. In, in the Bible, uh, Nehemiah comes before Esther. But in, in, in time, Esther comes before Nehemiah. Anyway, so Nehemiah grows up as a man who's never been to Israel. He's Jewish, but he's never been there. Never been to Jerusalem, but last week we saw that he hears about the plight of Jerusalem and it touches him heart, his heart in a very meaningful way. And he breaks down and cries, and he just feels his burden. He goes to the Lord to find out why. And God starts explaining to him not only why it happened, but what it's going to take to restore it and the part he's going to play in that. And so that's when we got introduced to Nehemiah last week. And so he, he started and, and he says, you know, I, I can sense this burden on my heart. He prayed and he got a vision or, or, or got a, a message from God about what to do. And that's something I think a lot of Christians are envious of. I get a lot of people say, man, if I only knew what God wanted me to do, I would so do it, you know. Um, I've come to the conclusion after being a pastor now for more than a day uh, that that's kind of a lie I think we tell ourselves that becomes a truth we tell to others. I don't think that we really want to know what God wants. What we want to know is what God could tell us to make our lives better. You know, I want to know which car to buy. I want to know which job to take. I want to know which person to marry. Right? I want to know which house to buy. That would be good. If you have a lotto pick, Lord, I'll take that. You know, that's what I really want. That's, that's what I really mean when I say I want to know God's will. I want to know God's will to make my life better is usually what that's about. And the problem is that that's um, not what God wants for the people he's going to talk to. And he's clear. In fact, he calls that a hard heart because we're more worried about this world and our life in this world that we're worried about his vision for this world and the kingdom of heaven. And so he says it's a hard heart. And if you picture a hard heart, it kind of looks like, have you ever seen one of these dried up sponges? I mean, uh, yes, we've seen them in our sinks. Yeah. Sponges are supposed to absorb, right? But when they get all brittle and hard and kind of curled up like this, you can put them down and pour water on what happens. It just splashes off because it's hard. It's not ready to receive what's coming. I think a lot of Christians' heart are hard, and we're warned about that. In Hebrews, Paul says that Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we're his house. But if we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope until the end, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
And a lot of Christians I meet, you know, and they tell me, I just can't hear God's voice. I don't even know if he's still speaking today. A lot of Christians don't believe he is. Uh, I think that many Christians never hear God speak just because God's not saying what they want to hear. You know, I hear something, but it doesn't make any sense to me. That must not be God. Clearly that's not. He's not making any sense. But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah was content to trust in the Lord. And so when this burden was placed on his heart, and his heart was ready to receive it, he did. And so he said, I'm going to do it. And this is where we left off. Uh, he's praying to God and he says, I'm going to help this desire you've given me. I'm going, to, I'm going to do something about it. I recognize you gave this desire to me for a purpose. And I'm going to need help from this man. He kind of refers to him as this man. This man is his boss. His boss is King Antiseraxes, the ruler of Persia. That's his boss. He's the cupbearer for the king. This man is going to have to give me favor. I'm not going to be able to do this without help. Some of that's very practical. He's going to leave his employer for months. He kind of needs his permission for that, especially when your employer is the most powerful man in the world at the time. And so, you know, and not necessarily, you know, Persian kings weren't really known for their generosity, mercy, and kindness. So, you know, you, he's going to need some, something there. Um, but quickly, just who is Antaxerxes? Some of you like the history. Some of you get bored during this part. Uh, nobody's own out. It won't last long. It starts with Darius the Great, sometimes pronounced Darius, who conquers and kind of starts the Persian Empire. It's made bigger by his son Xerxes, we know Xerxes a couple places. He's the guy who fights the Greeks at the, the Battle of the 300, the famous movie. Um, and he also is the guy who marries Esther after a big beauty contest. So that's who that is. Xerxes will be killed by a general of his later after all the failed uh, Greek uh, transgressions. And, and, and he, he comes home and he's not real popular at that moment. And a general kills him trying to usurp the throne. His one son, Antaxerxes, who uh, was actually very young. Uh, he was very young when he had him. That's not, this is not Esther's child. Uh, he, re, he avenges his father's death, uh, kills the general and his people, and actually ends up saving Esther in the process because they're in the process of trying to wipe out all about Xerxes because, you know, he wanted to get this other son into power. So that's who he is. He's the, he's the son of Xerxes, which is why the, you know, he has Xerxes as part of his name. Okay, so that's who he is. But there's something you need to understand about this time period. In this time period, in just like the book of Esther, the, the author of Esther and the author of Nehemiah, who is Nehemiah, uh, they're writing the history of the Jews and they want it to stick. They know this is an important period in, in the Jewish, in, in Jewish nation. They need it to stay. So they're writing this for the intent of having it stored in the Persian library. Because of that, both Esther and Nehemiah are very indirect books. In the book of Esther, God's never mentioned and neither is prayer, not once. You have to read between the lines to understand what they're saying because they had to get past the watchful eyes of the Persian librarian because they worshiped their kings as though they were gods. So to see that there was a, a god over everything was just not going to fly in Persia. So they had to kind of fly under the radar a little bit. And Nehemiah is a little more direct than Esther because it comes later and there's been a little bit of a change. Uh, but he still is going to have to give us hints as to what he really means. He can't come flat out and say it. And I call these breadcrumbs. If you remember the story of Hansel and Gretel, you know, they go in the dark forest and they leave little breadcrumbs behind and, and that's how they find their way back out. That's what Nehemiah does. He leaves us breadcrumbs. If you miss the breadcrumbs, you will read this like the Persian librarian and you'll be fooled. 
And it's amazing to me because I've read, you know, when I do these, these uh, the different series, I always study them. I read books and I, I read commentary. I even sometimes listen to some sermons to see what, you know, other people's take on the subject matter is. It seems like most of Christendom is reading this like Persian librarians. They're missing the breadcrumbs, and I want to spend a little time on that in case some of you are reading along behind. Don't miss the breadcrumbs. The stuff that's sticking in there that doesn't seem to belong is there for a reason. Nehemiah is a very, very clever man. So let me show you what happens next in the story without the breadcrumbs. Because this is the way it's usually taught by your, by your average, uh, well, anyway. So, and, and it came to pass in the 20th year of King Antaxerxes, when wine was before him, of course, he's the cupbearer, that's a good time to be before him. I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before, and therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. All right, now some of you may have heard this sermon preached before. What happens next is the, the preacher turns into amateur historian and will tell you that in the presence of the king, since he was considered the sun god, uh, you weren't ever supposed to be sad. It was considered an insult to him, and they could put you to death for that. I see nothing in history that backs that up. I don't know where that came from. It may be true for all I know, but I see nothing in history that backs it up. But this only makes sense if you leave out the breadcrumbs. You need to follow the trail that Nehemiah left for us because that's not what he's saying, I don't believe, at all. In fact, he talks about, I was sad, I fasted for days, uh, and, and then I, need, I prayed to God, help me. I'm going to need help with this man, you know, his boss. And the next phrase in the Bible really means this, four months pass. Four months Past. Now, of course, he doesn't say that exactly. What he does is he gives us the month that this is going to happen in. And if you track that back to the month he gave us as a breadcrumb in the first chapter, you'll see four months have passed. Now, he's very clear. He says, I never ever had been sad in his presence before. For four months, he was never sad in his presence. That's remarkable. By the way, the cupbearer does not get to call in sick because he's sad. So those four days when he was mourning for Israel, he was still showing up to duty. I mean, he's a very, the cupbearer, by the way, it seems like it's, a, it's a, you know, something like an acolyte of you know, like those kids who you know, put out the candles or something. It's a lot more important than that. This is the last person who handles the food and drink before the king eats or drinks. It is the most trusted person in the kingdom because he's the only thing that stands between the king and poison. It's a very trusted advisor. Usually the king considers him kind of a friend. It's somebody you know would never betray you, which tells us something about Nehemiah's character, that he's a Jew and he has that kind of trust in the king of Persia. So, you know, him not showing up would be a big deal to the king. So he showed up every day for four months and never showed his sadness. This guy was a brilliant diplomat. He could push down his emotions. He could put that face on. He could walk in and he could be normal, even though inside his heart was broken. I want you to see that for four months that happens. But this day, the king noticed he's sad. See, I believe that he dropped the guard. This was the day that he was finally going to show the king how he really felt. Now, why would he do that? Because he can't approach the king. He has no right to approach the king and ask him for anything. Oh, but if the king asks, he can answer. 
Again, he knows the court. He knows it very well. So on this day, he drops his guard. Why? Well, you've all seen the movie, I'm sure. The, this shows up all kinds of times in movies because it's dramatic. You know, the, the general will send this one little attacking force around the other side of the fortress. And he'll say, when I shoot the flaming arrow into the air, you attack, right? It's, Wait for my signal and then you attack because it's dramatic. I believe that God shot a flaming arrow into the air and told Nehemiah, now is the time. I believe he waited for four months not out of a plan, but because he was waiting on God's timing. And I have another breadcrumb to show you. And actually, it comes a verse later than this. He's talking about the king speaking to him. He says, oh, and the queen was sitting next to him. This doesn't make any sense at all, by the way. This queen never speaks. She doesn't speak. The king doesn't reference her. Nehemiah doesn't reference her, except for right here in this paren. There's nothing in the story why he would tell us the queen was there. They were not alone, by the way. The cupbearer wouldn't be in the presence of the king to serve him wine alone. There were a lot of people there. There were scribes. There, were, there was the, you know, the, 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 the advisor. There would be the, the, the um, guy who plays the trumpet and announces people. The guard was there, at least. And there's probably dignitaries there from other countries as well. None of them get a mention. He says the queen was there, and he doesn't name her. That's also very interesting. When he mentions the king, he mentions it by name. He doesn't name the queen. Why? I believe it's because the queen who was there was Esther. Now, Esther's in semi-retirement at this point. So that she's not the, she's not the, the consort queen. Uh, this is her stepson. She's in semi-retirement, but she is highly revered by all the people. Remember, they're doing this feast in her honor every year. And they were still doing it that day. And I know in that day they were still doing it because they're still doing it to this day. You understand, the Feast of Esther takes place every March. Still to this day, it's still celebrated. She was highly respected, highly revered. She and her uncle had given great counsel to, the, to Xerxes and, and helped him fend off a lot of the problems. And so I believe this was just the first day she showed up. I don't think she came here very often. She would have had her own estate that she lived in. Her husband was, was passed. But she was like the queen mother would be another expression, I think, better than the queen. But he can't tell us that. I think he's given us a clue here, though. When I saw Esther, I knew this was a day. Because what better time to ask about helping the Jews than when Esther's in the room? Now, that's a perfect time for me to ask it. I think he walked in, and I thought he saw Esther and went, oh, boy, here we go. I've been praying for, for a sign from the Lord. This is it. Esther's here. She would be famous by the way. She was like a celebrity. Wow, Esther is here. So um, this is not unusual. In Proverbs, it tells us if you commit your works to the Lord, your plans will be established. You can trust God to take care of these details, these timing details. It's okay. Trust Him with it because you've committed all this to Him. Now, if you haven't committed your plans to the Lord, but you want Him to bless them anyway, good luck. I found that doesn't help very much. Uh, but if you follow this pattern that Nehemiah is following, and I, I think it's really important we see all this because I think it shows us the proper way to move from the vision standpoint to the actual doing standpoint. Nehemiah shows us some important things along the way. There's this process. First of all, his heart was broken. And then a vision was revealed. He got it from God. It wasn't like he dreamed this up. God started telling him things. And then he comes up with a plan. And then he spends his next time to wait for an opportunity. I'm going to just wait. Now, if you think about that, where for four months, he hasn't ever uh, been in sorrowful, but today he is, and the king picks up on it. Which, by the way, I don't even understand that other version. 
The king didn't notice for four months he was crying. I mean, what kind of a, kind of a moron is this? I mean, they were friends. He would have noticed immediately. As soon as he saw him sad, he said, wow, this is something. Now read it again because before it showed you like, like you know, the king was attacking him. You must be sad in my presence. I was okay. But now read it because it reads more like a friend if you realize this is the first day that happened. He says, the king says, why is your face sad? You're not sick. Well, this is nothing but the sorrow of heart. And he's like, tell me, my friend, what's wrong with you? Why are you sad in your heart? That's what I believe this is. I don't think he's threatening him at all. Well, what about this line? So I became dreadfully afraid. What about that? Well, the Hebrew word there actually translates to fear, revere, and be afraid. This is like you standing in front of the Grand Canyon. And you feel that kind of that trickle of fear because you realize you fell down it was like forever, right? Or you stand in front of the ocean maybe or the, or the Niagara Falls and you have ever been there and you just, like, just watch this thing. You just feel this enormity of this thing washing over. You say, wow, that's huge. It's a fear, but it's fear from awe. I believe what happens right now is he stands up and his heart's pounding because this is the day. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you've been planning and thinking and then today's the day that you've been waiting for for months and here it is right in front of you and you're getting ready to act and your hands shake? Have you ever been that kind of thing? I, I don't know what you may have been through in your life. But if you haven't, by the way, you're not living. You need to have these moments in your life when, when you just like this thrill, not of what's going to happen, but of maybe failure. I'm more worried about not making it happen than happening it. I don't know if many of you men were romantic and surprised your wife with a, with a, a proposal, you know, but the heart pounding as you're trying to get that ring out and surprise her with it, you know, that, that kind of a moment. Uh, you may have had it in work. You, you may have had it in, in your family. Um, I had it before I signed the paperwork on this building. I was committing our family to five-year lease, and I was on the hook for it. And by the way, most churches fail in two years, and uh, churches much better funded than ours have failed in five. And so I was signing up for a five-year lease on this building, and I was going to pay it whether there was a church here or not. I, I had that fear, you know. But sometimes you say, you know, whatever, I'm just going to go for it. You just jump off. Here I go, Lord. You, you got me, right? And you jump. And so I think that's what's happening. He's standing up, and his heart's pounding, and he's like, I'm proud practice this. I know what I'm doing. I just need to speak correctly, and God is in this. And so he's got this excitement and this fear. And uh, so anyway, so he uh, says, well, why, why may the king live forever? That's a standard thing. Um, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies in waste? Its gates were burned with fire. Now, Esther must have perked up at that moment. For all I know, because she's pretty close to God by this time, God sent her that day, and she knew exactly what was going to happen. I don't know. But you can imagine her, her attention at this moment, because these are her people too, right? And so um, the king says, well, what do you need? What's your request? He's no dummy. He understands what this is. This is a request. But this is a request. Catch this from a friend. What do you need? How can I help? And so I pray to the God of heaven, listen, there is nothing wrong to a quick help me Lord prayer. There is nothing wrong with that at all. I don't know if you've ever had one of those, help me now Lord, here I go. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's absolutely biblical. That's what Nehemiah is doing. Here I go, God, help me. Give me the right words here. And then he goes into it. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, which I promise you he had, that's why he was trusted, I ask you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and this is where he mentions the queen, by the way, how long will your journey be? 
when will you return? I'm like, I didn't get to test my food while you're gone. Another question. So it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governor of the region beyond the river. They're not going to know who I am when I get over there. They must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And they'll also need a letter there to the keeper of the king's forest because I'm going to get timber, right? And I'm going to make beams, uh, and I'm going to have to rebuild the temple and the city wall for the house that I'm going to occupy. I'm going to need supplies. I'm going to need that. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So he's letting us know it wasn't me. It wasn't my great gentle tongue. This guy granted it because God's hand was upon this. But I want you to see something. Nehemiah knew exactly who, what, where, and when. And God had already told him why. He'd spent four months planning for this day. He was waiting for the moment that God said, go. And when he got the signal, he went. Listen, does planning diminish faith? I have Christians tell me that. If I plan, that means I'm not living by faith. You know? No, that means you're not living on purpose. That means everything's accidental. And I watch people all the time bounce from thing to thing and get hit left and right. And they're like, well, I'm just trying to live by faith. Well, why don't you plan something? You know? and, and they point out to um, a passage in James. This seems to say don't plan. But read it. This is not what James is saying. He says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into that city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life might be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go there and do this and do that. There is absolutely nothing wrong with planning for tomorrow as long as God is in the middle of our plan for tomorrow. That's what James is saying. He said, you can't take God out of the equation. You know, I always say, this is my plan. God, is this good? I promise you, for four solid months, Nehemiah had been vetting his plan before the Lord. And I think God was changing it, because that's how God works with my plans. Nehemiah is probably better than I am, but uh, I get God changing my plans all the time. No, that's not right. You can cross this out and do that, you know. But you, you had to take time to plan that. And so I think he's been going through that. In fact, Jesus Christ himself kind of talks about planning. He talks about like it's a gimme. Like, of course you're going to plan. Uh, he says this. He said, which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he laid the foundations, not able to finish, all observe it, begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build one is able to finish. Like God, Jesus is like taking this as a, as a baseline. Well, of course you plan, right? Well, and then he goes on to talk about why you should count the cost of discipleship. Well, Jesus is assuming we're planning. He's not saying, oh, wicked, evil men don't plan. He's saying, well, of course you're going to do that. Who wouldn't do that? That just makes sense. Christians sometimes just don't make sense. They go running around, and, and they, 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 they say, well, I'm just living by faith. You know, well, okay. God didn't tell you don't plan. He said he wants to be with you, right? He wants to be with you in the midst of the plan. Okay, so um, the one thing, though, is we're right to plan. We're wrong to manipulate. And I want to point out that that's exactly what Nehemiah does. I'm getting catcalled here. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I, again, I was going to say, it's just, I would by far rather preach over the sound of babies here than have an empty church and, with no life. So I'm, I'm happy you guys are here. Um, anyway, but I want you to see that Nehemiah walked into Xerxes' courtroom every day for four months and never said a word about what was on his heart. Not a word. He could have, you know. 
hey, uh, King, today I prepared for you, uh, for your pleasure, uh, lox and a bagel and a little bit of this. And Well, that's really great. Yes, it comes from my homeland. Be a shame if we lost it one day. You know, I mean, he could have tried to put him in a position or tried to manipulate him, you know, listen to what he's saying. Oh, I know he likes this. I'll tie this in with that. So many times, Christians, when we get into the planning mode and we see, well, I'm going to need this person's favor, we kind of start trying to manipulate that person to get them to the point where they're going to say yes to us. I'll soften him up. I'll send an email to his boss. And I, I got this plan on how I'm going to prepare him. And we don't need to do that because God says he'll prepare the hearts. You know, we, we have a saying in our house that, you know, it's our job for instruction. It's God's job for the heart. You know, there's only two ways you learn in life. We keep telling our kids this. They're, they're probably bored with me already because they don't want to say. You either learn by instruction or you learn by experience. Our job as parents is to try to make it more instruction and less experience. We're trying very, very hard so you don't learn by experience because we've, we have and it's painful. But changing the heart isn't our business. Changing the heart's God's business. We've got to let the heart belong to God. We can't change the hearts. We can't manipulate. We're not supposed to to manipulate. Planning is not manipulating. In Proverbs, he says this, getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of, the, of those who seek death. So we've got to be careful. We are to plan. We're not to plan without God, and we're not to manipulate the people. But we're supposed to do that, and while we're doing that, we need to wait for his signal. Another way of saying that, really pithy here, until God says so, we don't go. And sometimes that's hard. You know, sometimes when God has laid something on your heart and all of a sudden it becomes so apparent to you, this is what you, what you do, oh, we want to go rushing off right now. Let's do it now. And sometimes God says, you need to wait. I will tell you when. You know, we've done a lot of uh, talking to people throughout the years, and uh, one thing I hear from a lot of people, very sincere Christians, is why does the church not have the power today that it seems to have in the book of Acts? If you read the book of Acts, and you compare the experience in that day with the Christian church, with the experience, I don't care what church you're going to, including Spirit Chapel, today. It's like, it's not that we're on separate teams. We're playing different sports, you know? It's like they're, they're doing that, we're playing wiffle ball. I mean, it's just like nothing close to what the book of Acts says. I don't believe the problem is in the seed. I believe it's in the soil. I believe there's two big things that are preventing Christians from being successful when God lays these big dreams on their hearts. And the first one is they just don't want to know what God's plan for our life is. Don't disrupt me. I'm doing good here. You know, I'm, I'm okay with where I am. It's very difficult sometimes to get people who have an easy life to get motivated about moving out of their comfort zone and doing things for the Lord. It's very difficult. Um, so I think that's the number one by far reason is people say, I'm, I'm doing all right. Basically, most Christians I meet, honestly, and this isn't the way they put it, and maybe I'm being a little cynical and being a pastor for more than a day will do that to you, but um, it's almost like what I find out most people say is, here's what I want from God. First of all, I want to know I'm not going to hell. I don't even know how many Christians believe in hell anymore. It seems like I meet a lot that aren't quite sure about it. But if it's there, they don't want to go. Everybody's sure of that. If it is there, don't want to go. So I want to make sure I got that. With that in my pocket, anything you could do to make my life better here. I'm, I'm all ears. You know, anything I hear about, you have you playing for a purpose and doing good for me and all the different scriptures that get misquoted. And if, if you could do that, I want to know. Other than that, I'm pretty good. Um, I won't bother you very much. Every now and then I'll need something, I'll pray. But I really won't bother you very much, I promise you, Lord. I won't, I won't bug you. And that's really not what God's trying to get with us at all. Right? He's trying to get us to have a, a very, very close, tight friendship and relationship with them. And he's trying to tell us, hey, there's things that are on heaven's heart 
that I need to put on your heart. And we're going to do something amazing together. And you're going to look back later and it's going, to, it's going to amaze you that you got through it and you did it and all this stuff happened. And you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And people just don't want to believe that. So that's the number one reason by far. But the second biggest reason, I think, is that Christians just don't wait for God's timing. And my heart goes out to these. I've been this person. I'm kind of an impatient person. I don't know if you knew that. I am. Uh, and that's why I don't want ever, any of you to see me in a line at Walmart. I mean, I just, uh, just tests every inch of my Christianity, and sometimes I fail. So not, my wife has seen me, and she's like, I think you should shut the church. I don't think that a pa- I just have a hard time at Walmart. I don't know. It's like, if Disneyland is the happiest place on earth, Walmart line, most miserable place on earth for me. But um, so I, I get it. I, I sometimes jump out ahead of God. And uh, when I do, uh, it doesn't go well. And the thing is that we cannot honor God's word or his promise without also honoring his timing. And it's hard to do that. I mean, even when there's things going on in my life, it's hard to do that. Uh, When Victoria and I first got engaged, uh, she was in Ukraine, and we had to go through the INS to get her here. Um, By far and away, the INS was the worst government agency I've ever tried to work with. I think healthcare.gov may take that over now, but uh, up until then, by far and away the worst. And part of it was because uh, she didn't speak English very well and didn't know the process very well, and they wouldn't talk to me because I wasn't the alien. She was, and so very, very difficult. Uh, It took us seven months to get her here on a K-1 visa. Um, And that, by the way, was great. I I personally knew people had been waiting over a year. I mean, we got her here in seven months. It was remarkable. That whole time was like the most miserable time of my life, seven months, you know. Um, But what happened in that seven months was because of the huge disparity in economics between Ukraine and America, Victoria was working a job, and keep in mind, she has the equivalency of a master's degree, and they're paying about 65 bucks a month or something like that. Um, So that was her salary. I said, okay, that's going to stop. I will send you (laughs) $75 a month. I'm rich. Uh, And so I'll I'll send that to you. And... um, I'll also send you extra money. You and Stas go take English lessons. Your job right now for as long as this takes is learn English the best you can. And so she and, she and Stas, you know, I forget how many, two, three times a week or something, you met with the teacher who taught, taught them English. Uh, Stas kind of goofed off, I understand, most of the lessons. But uh, so the, I, met the, I met the translator. She told me uh, that Victoria was by far and away her best student ever. That does not surprise me, you know. In, and yet, in seven months when she came here, there was still a huge language barrier for her. I can't imagine what it would have been like if she just flown home with me the day I proposed to her. I just can't imagine what her life would have been like. Even yet, it was hard. You know, I think God knew what he was doing. No, <laughs> she needs time, and she had to say goodbye to everybody. There's so much she had to take care of. You know, seven months seems like a long time. Not anymore. You know, we've been married for 15 years. Seven months is like, ooh, that went by fast. At the time, it was miserable, though. God kind of understands timing better than we do. He's the one who invented time, so he's pretty good with it, right? And, and so he, we need to understand that he's got already a timing in place for everything. And it will be painful to wait for God. But um, I can't tell you how many verses in the Bible begin with the words, wait upon the Lord. Do a study of that sometime. I was, uh, before we even knew Spirit Chapel was coming, uh, I was going through this Bible study every day and, and really spend time with the Lord. It was like one of the best growth periods of my Christian life. 
And um, I was going through the Bible, and man, I hit every single one of those wait on the Lord verses. And every day, I'd walk in, you know, and Victoria would say, did God say anything to you? Yeah, he said, wait, did you tell him we're tired of waiting? Yes, I did. Doesn't seem to care. You know, so we didn't know. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know Spirit Chapel was coming. We had no idea. Everything was in flux. Uh, and so it was very, very difficult to wait when we don't know how long the wait is going to be. That's the hard part, right? Seven months would have been a lot better if I knew it was seven months. Right? I didn't. It could be two years. I didn't know. And I didn't even know what I was waiting for when it came to this. So I, I had no idea. It's just God saying, wait. Just wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. All the promises come after that, by the way. You know, you mount up on wings of eagles. That comes after. Wait upon the Lord. And so, wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. For, for Nehemiah, he waited for four months. Spirit Chapel has been waiting for four years now. I don't know if the wait's up. Maybe another four years. Maybe we are going to kind of start moving into the vision that God has given us. Hey, you know, Joseph had to wait 12 years in prison. That's a, that's a tough wait, 12 years in prison. And he had no idea when he was getting out. Uh, Moses waited 40 years. 40 years. Poor, poor Joshua waited 80. I mean, it, it, it doesn't matter, right? But, but if, you, if you look at what was going on, the greater the thing that the people were called to, it seemed like the longer they had to wait. And, and so, you know, God has his timing, and, and we're supposed to be planning and praying and bring our plan before the Lord. Is this right? What a, take that moment to get ready and rest. Because the time's coming when you're going to be marching, and it's going to be a struggle. And when Nehemiah finally gets into this, he doesn't get much rest. So go ahead and rest up. You know, and no matter, I don't know what God's calling you to. Like I said, it could be you know, repairing your family. It could be a ministry. It could be a very small ministry. Maybe you're reaching out to one family in your neighborhood that you have a heart for or something in the school or something. I don't know what God's calling you, but I promise you that God has a vision that impacts you somewhere around you. That's why you're here. It was no accident that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. That wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident that, that Joseph got sold to Potiphar. None of these were accidents. God brought them there for a purpose. And when their heart got turned to him, he revealed that purpose. And then he told them to wait. And that's the hardest thing to do. But here's the other thing I want to say. That uh, as I meet Christians who are honestly praying, God speak to me. And they feel like they heard God's voice about something or somebody told them, I think God's telling you this. And you grab onto that promise and you step out on it and it doesn't happen. What then? Or what if I was supposed to wait and I didn't? I jumped the gun and a boy blew up in my face. What then? What, what then? Well, um, I think the important thing then is we need to be truthful and we need to be honest. The most powerful Christian you will ever meet is the most, most authentic Christian that you meet. We, we need to just try to be authentic Christians. We need to stop trying to figure out what other people are looking and thinking about us or you know, what we think we should be. We need to be authentic. And authentic means I'm trying every day to become a better Christian and have a better connection with the living God. That's my purpose in life. And I need to be authentic about that if I'm going to grow and get better. I'm, I'm meeting a lot of Christians who are kind of hiding some things and rewriting history in order to try to cram this stuff into a Christian walk that's straight up. You know, the, the reason that we go up and down and up and down is because it's called a walk. And a walk is just simply interrupted series of falls. It's okay. It's okay that you got it wrong sometimes. Uh, but we have to be authentic about it if we're going to grow. Uh, in Thessalonians, Paul says this, In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. 
Don't try to put the Spirit out in your life. How do you do that? Well, by despising prophecies. That's the other side of that. If, if you don't want God speaking into your life, then you're going to quench the Spirit in your life. Because you've told me you don't want to hear Him. Just shut up. I don't, want, I, want, I don't want to hear you. Well, that's going to kind of really damper your growth with the Lord, right? If, if you're, I don't want to hear it. I don't, don't tell me. I don't want. I actually know people like that. I, I had a Christian tell me once, literally use these words, my heart's just hard. And he was okay with it. Like, I've kind of got myself in a groove right now. I try to do good. I still believe in God. But don't talk to me about the Spirit talking to me. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it in the Spirit talking to me. I just don't want it. So that's a problem. That's, so Paul's saying, don't do that. That quenches the Spirit. You want the Spirit alive in your life. Test all things and hold fast to what's good. But we need to learn how to do that. Everything, including everything spoken from this pulpit, you need to test. I don't mind when you all pick up the Bible and check me out. I, I don't mind that at all. I don't mind getting texts from some of you. I don't know where that scripture came from. What are you talking about? I don't mind that. You should. You should test everything that you hear. Any preacher preach to you. Anything. Test it. Pray about it. Go check the scripture out yourself. God, is this truth? We need to do that. And when it is true, you hold fast to it. Those things are true, man. You grab onto that and you don't let go. But that which doesn't, throw it away. And then he says this, abstain from every form of evil. I'll tell you what is evil in God's sight. Rewriting history to make it sound like he gave you a prophecy he didn't give you. Or trying to explain to everybody else why you didn't jump the gun when he did give you something to do and it blew up. Like this was all God's will. We need to own what we do wrong. Or we can't correct what we do wrong. Right? I mean, you know that. Have you ever tried to teach somebody who'll never admit they did something wrong? I don't know if you ever like, tried to instruct them in guitar or piano or, you know, and they just know everything. You can't they just tell you why you're wrong. You can't teach that person something, right? It's like one of the most frustrating experiences in your life when a person's just always right and you're trying to show them they're wrong. If they would just change it, they'd get better. They, I don't, no, I'm right. I'm right. I didn't do it. I'm okay. They can't learn. If we're going to learn, we have to say, God, you know what? I'm wrong. If you don't wait on God, your move should be repentance. If, if you told somebody, hey, God's going to do this in your life and it doesn't happen, your move is repentance. Oh, you know what? I was wrong. Do you know what they did in the Old Testament when someone would say, thus says the Lord, and it didn't happen? They stoned them to death. It was a capital offense. God takes a very dim view of people speaking in his name and getting it wrong. Right? So he's, he, you know, well, we're on a law, we're on a grace now, we're on a law. God didn't change. He still takes a very dim view of people saying something that he didn't say. When we get it wrong, it's okay you got it wrong. Go back to God and say, I blew it. Because this teaches us what we heard wasn't right. And if we start filtering out the things that aren't God, we'll eventually start getting into the things that are God. But we have to grow in order to do that. You have to want to grow and you have to do it. You have to be an authentic Christian. And that's, I think, where, where we need to look at Nehemiah. We need to learn the things he already knew. Because he knew how to wait upon the Lord. He knew how to plan. And he knew how to hear the Lord. And he knew what to do when he heard the Lord. And his heart was right. And he's amazing throughout the entire book. He's just astounding. Wait until you see some of the stuff he does. It's amazing what he's able to accomplish. And, you know, he doesn't have any authority when this starts out. He ends up with all kind of authority. He brings the whole people to repentance. He didn't start out with that vision. That was God's vision. He started out with one thing I'm going to do. I'm going to rebuild the wall. And it grew. 
That's how God works with us. He gives us one little tiny thing to do that we can grab onto. Yeah, I'll do that. And then before you know it, it grows. God's a big God. I promise you his dreams for you are greater than your, your dreams for you. But in order to get there, we have to be authentic Christians. And if God doesn't say so, you don't go. No matter how much you want to, just pray until God gives you the signal. Would you all please pray with me?